0: Section 4 of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section 4, Chapter 7, Reign of Olaf Tryggvason. Olaf Tryggvason, AD 995 to 1000, also makes a great figure in the Fawar saga and recounts there his early troubles, which were strange and many. He is still reckoned a grand hero of the North, though his vates now is only Snorro Sturluson of Iceland. Tryggvason had indeed many adventures in the world. His poor mother, Astrid, was obliged to fly, on murder of her husband by Gunnhild, to fly for her life, three months before he, her little Olaf, was born. She lay concealed in reedy islands, fled through trackless forests, reached her father's with the little baby in her arms, and lay deep hidden there, tended only by her father himself, Gunnhild's pursuit being so incessant, and keen as with sleuth-hounds. Poor Astrid had to fly again, deviously to Sweden, to Astland, Esthonia, to Russia. In Astland she was sold as a slave, quite parted from her boy, who also was sold, and again sold, but did at last fall in with a kinsman high in the Russian service— did from him find redemption and help, and so rose in a distinguished manner to manhood, victorious self-help and recovery of his kingdom at last. He even met his mother again, he as king of Norway, she as one wonderfully lifted out of darkness into new life and happiness still in store. Grown to manhood, Trygveson, now become acquainted with his birth, and with his, alas, hopeless claims, left Russia for the one profession open to him, that of sea-robbery, and did feats without number in that questionable line in many seas and scenes, in England latterly, and most conspicuously of all. In one of his courses thither, after long labours in the Hebrides, Man, Wales, and down the western shores to the very land's end and farther, he paused at the silly islands for a little while. He was told of a wonderful Christian hermit living strangely in these sea-solitudes, had the curiosity to seek him out, examine, question, and discourse with him, and, after some reflection, accepted Christian baptism from the venerable man. In Snorro the story is involved in miracle, rumour, and fable, but the fact itself seems certain, and is very interesting, the great, wild, noble soul of fierce Olaf opening to this wonderful gospel of tidings from beyond the world, tidings which infinitely transcended all else he had ever heard or dreamt of, It seems certain he was baptized here, date not fixable, shortly before poor heartbroken Dunstan's death, or shortly after. Most English churches, monasteries especially, lying burnt, under continual visitation of the Danes. Olaf, such baptism notwithstanding, did not quit his Viking profession. Indeed, what other was there for him in the world, as yet? We mentioned his occasional copartneries with Sphine of the Double Beard, now become king of Denmark. But the greatest of these, and the alone interesting at this time, is their joint invasion of England, and Trygveson's exploits and fortunes there some years after that adventure of baptism in the Scilly Isles. Sveen and he were above a year in England together. This time they steered up the Thames with three hundred ships and many fighters. Siege, or at least furious assault, of London was their first or main enterprise, but it did not succeed. The Saxon Chronicles gives date to it, A.D. 994, and names expressly, as Sven's co-partner, Olius, King of Norway, which he was as yet far from being. But in regard to the Year of Grace the Saxon Chronicle is held to be indisputable, and indeed has the field to itself in this matter. Famed Olaf Tryggvason, seen visibly at the siege of London, year 994, It throws a kind of momentary light to us over all that disastrous whirlpool of miseries and confusions, all dark and painful to the fancy otherwise. This big voyage and furious siege of London is Svean Doublebeard's first real attempt to fulfil that vow of his at Father Bluetooth's funeral ale, and conquer England, which it is a pity he could not yet do. Had London now fallen to him, it is pretty evident all England must have followed and poor England, with Sven as king over it, been delivered from immeasurable woes, which had to last some two-and-twenty years farther, before this result could be arrived at. But finding London impregnable for the moment, no ship being able to get athwart the bridge, and many Danes perishing in the attempt to do it by swimming, Sven and Olaf turned to other enterprises, all England in a manner lying open to them, turn which way they liked. They burnt and plundered over Kent, over Hampshire, Sussex. They stormed far and wide, world lying all before them where to choose. Wretched Ethelred, as the one invention he could fall upon, offered them Dangelt, sixteen thousand pounds of silver this year, but it rose in other years as high as forty-eight thousand pounds. The desperate Ethelred, a clear method of quenching fire by pouring oil on it. Sven and Olaf accepted, withdrew to Southampton. Olaf, at least, did, till the money was got ready. Strange to think of it, fierce Svein of the double beard, and conquest of England by himself, this had at last become the one salutary result which remained for that distracted, downtrodden, now utterly chaotic and anarchic country. A conquering Svein, followed by an ably and earnestly administrative, as well as conquering, Canute, whom Dalman compares to Charlemagne, were thus by the mysterious destinies appointed the effective saviours of england tryggveson on this occasion was a good while at southampton and roamed extensively about easily victorious over everything if resistance were attempted but finding little or none and acting now in a peaceable or even friendly capacity in the southampton country he came in contact with the then bishop of winchester afterwards archbishop of canterbury excellent Elphagus, still dimly decipherable to us as a man of great natural discernment, piety, and inborn veracity, a hero-soul, probably of real brotherhood with Olaf's own. He even made court visits to King Ethelred, one visit to him at Andover of a very serious nature. By Elphagus, as we can discover, he was introduced into the real depths of the Christian faith. Elphagus, with due solemnity of apparatus, in presence of the king at Andover, baptized Olaf anew, and to him Olaf engaged that he would never plunder in England any more, which promise, too, he kept. In fact, not long after, Spain's conquest of England being in an evidently forward state, Trygveson, having made, withal, a great English or Irish marriage, a dowager princess, who had voluntarily fallen in love with him, see Snorro for this fine romantic fact, mainly resided in our island for two or three years, or else in Dublin, in the precincts of the Danish court there in the Sister Isle. Accordingly it was in Dublin, as above noted, that Hakon's spy found him, and from the Liffey that his squadron sailed, through the Hebrides, through the Orkneys, plundering and baptizing in their strange way, towards such success as we have seen. Trygveson made a stout and, in effect, victorious and glorious struggle for himself as king, daily and hourly vigilant to do so, often enough by soft and even merry methods, for he was a witty, jocund man, and had a fine, ringing laugh in him, and clear, pregnant words ever ready, or if soft methods would not serve, then by hard and even hardest he put down a great deal of miscellaneous anarchy in Norway. It was especially busy against heathenism, devil-worship, and its rites. This, indeed, may be called the focus and heart of all his royal endeavour in Norway, and of all the troubles he now had with his people there. For this was a serious, vital, all-comprehending matter—devil-worship, a thing not to be tolerated one moment longer than you could, by any method, help. Olaf's success was intermittent, of varying complexion, but his effort, swift or slow, was strong and continual, and on the whole he did succeed. Take a sample or two of that wonderful conversion process." At one of the first things he found the bonders all assembled in arms, resolute to the death, seemingly, against his proposal and him. Tryggveson said little, waited impassive, "'What your reasons are, good men?' One zealous bonder started up in passionate parliamentary eloquence, but after a sentence or two broke down. One, and then another, and still another, remained all three staring in open-mouthed silence there. The peasant proprietors accepted the phenomenon as ludicrous— perhaps partly as miraculous withal, and consented to baptism this time. On another occasion of a thing, which had assembled near some heathen temple to meet him, temple where Hakon Jarl had done much repairing, and set up many idol figures and sumptuous ornaments, regardless of expense, especially a very big and splendid Thor, with massive gold collar round the neck of him, not the like of it in Norway, King Olaf Tryggvason was clamorously invited by the bonders to step in there, enlighten his eyes, and partake of the sacred rites. Instead of which he rushed into the temple with his armed men, smashed down with his own battle-axe the god Thor, prostrate on the ground at one stroke, to set an example, and in a few minutes had the whole Hakon pantheon wrecked, packing up, meanwhile, all the gold and preciosities accumulated there, not forgetting Thor's illustrious gold collar, of which we shall hear again, and victoriously took the plunder home, with him, for his own royal uses and behoof of the State. In other cases, though a friend to strong measures, he had to hold in, and await the favourable moment. Thus, once, in beginning a parliamentary address, so soon as he came to touch upon Christianity, the bonders rose in murmurs, in vociferous and jingling of arms, which quite drowned the royal voice declared they had taken arms against King Hakon the Good to compel him to desist from his Christian proposals, and they did not think King Olaf a higher man than him, Hakon the Good. The king then said, he purposed coming to them next Yule to their great sacrificial feast, to see for himself what their customs were, which pacified the bonders for this time. The appointed place of meeting was again a Hakon Jarl temple, not yet done to ruin, chief shrine in those Trondheim parts, I believe. There should Trigvison appear at Yule. Well, but before Yule came, Trigvison made a great banquet in his palace at Trondheim, and invited far and wide, all manner of important persons out of the district as guests there. Banquet hardly done, Trigvison gave some slight signal, upon which armed men strode in, seized eleven of these principal persons, and the king said,— Since he himself was to become a heathen again, and do sacrifice, it was his purpose to do it in the highest form, namely, that of human sacrifice, and this time not of slaves and malefactors, but of the best men in the country, in which stringent circumstances the eleven seized persons, and company at large, gave unanimous consent to baptism, straightway received the same, and abjured their idols, but were not permitted to go home till they had left, in sons, brothers, and other precious relatives, sufficient hostages in the king's hands. By unwearied industry of this and better kinds, Tryggveson had trampled down idolatry, so far as form went, how far in substance may be greatly doubted. But it is to be remembered withal, that always on the back of these compulsory adventures there followed English bishops, priests, and teachers, whereby, to the open-minded, conviction, to all degrees of it, was attained, while silence and passivity became the duty or necessity of the unconvinced party." In about two years Norway was all gone over with a rough harrow of conversion. Heathenism, at least, constrained to be silent and outwardly conformable. Tryggvason next turned his attention to Iceland, sent one Thangbrand, priest from Saxony, of wonderful qualities, military as well as theological, to try and convert Iceland. Thangbrand made a few converts, for Olaf had already many estimable Iceland friends, whom he liked much, and was much liked by, and conversion was the ready road to his favour. Thengbrand, I find, lodged with the Hall of Sida, formal acquaintance of Bernt whose saga has its admirers among us even now. Thengbrand converted Hall and one or two other leading men, but in general he was reckoned quarrelsome and blusterous rather than eloquent and piously convincing. Two scalds of repute made biting lampoons upon Thengbrand, whom Thengbrand, by two opportunities that afforded, cut down and did death because of their scaldic quality. Another he killed with his own hand, I know not for what reason. In brief, after about a year, Thangbren returned to Norway and King Olaf, declaring the Icelanders to be a perverse, satirical, and unconvertible people, having himself, the record says, been the death of three men there. King Olaf was in high rage at this result, but was persuaded by the Icelanders about him to try farther, and by a wilder instrument. He accordingly chose one Thormund, a pious, patient, and kindly man, who within the next year or so did actually accomplish the matter, namely, get Christianity, by open vote, declared at Thingvalla by the general thing of Iceland there, the roar of a big thunderclap at the right moment rather helping the conclusion, if I recollect. Whereupon Olaf's joy was no doubt great." One general result of these successful operations was the discontent, to all manner of degrees, on the part of many Norse individuals, against this glorious and victorious, but peremptory and terrible king of theirs. Tryggvason, I fancy, did not much regard all that, a man of joyful, cheery temper, habitually contemptuous of danger. Another trivial misfortune that befell in these conversion operations, and became important to him, he did not even know of, and would have much despised if he had. It was this. Sigrid, Queen Dowager of Sweden, thought to be among the most shining women of the world, was also known for one of the most imperious, revengeful, and relentless, and had got for herself the name of Sigrid the Proud. In her high widowhood she had naturally many wooers, but treated them in a manner unexampled. Two of her suitors, simultaneous two, were King Harold Grinsake, a cousin of King Tryggveson's, and a kind of king in some district, by sufferance of the late Hackens, This luckless Grainske, and the then Russian sovereign as well, name not worth mentioning, were zealous suitors of Queen Dowager Sigrid, and were perversely slow to accept the negative, in which her heart was inexorable for both, though the expression of it could not be quite so emphatic. By ill luck for them they came once, from the far west Grainske, from the far east the Russian, and arrived both together at Sigrid's court, to prosecute their importunate, and to her odious and tiresome suit. Much, how very much, to her impatience and disdain. She lodged them both in some old mansion, which she had contiguous, and got compendiously furnished for them, and there, I know not whether on the first or on the second, or on what following night, this unparalleled Queen Sigrid had the house surrounded, set on fire, and the two suitors and their people burnt to ashes. No more bother from these two, at least— This appears to be a fact, and it could not be unknown to Tryggveson. In spite of which, however, there went from Tryggveson, who was now a widower, some incipient marriage proposals to this proud widow, by whom they were favourably received, as from the brightest man in all the world, they might seem worth being. Now, in one of these anti-heathen onslaughts of King Olaf's on the idle temples of Hakon, I think it was that case where Olaf's own battle-axe struck down the monstrous, refulgent Thor, and conquered an immense gold ring from the neck of him, or from the door of his temple. A huge gold ring, at any rate, had come into Olaf's hands, and this he bethought him might be a pretty present to Queen Sigrid, the now favourable, though the proud. Sigrid received the ring with joy, fancied what a collar it would make for her own fair neck, but noticed that her two goldsmiths, weighing it on their fingers, exchanged a glance. "'What is that?' exclaimed Queen Sigrid." nothing, answered they, or endeavoured to answer, dreading mischief. But Sigrid compelled them to break open the ring, and there was found, all along the inside of it, an occult ring of copper, not a heart of gold at all. Ha! said the proud queen, flinging it away, he that can deceive in this manner can deceive in many others, and was in hot wrath with Olaf, though by degrees again she took milder thoughts. Milder thoughts, we say, and consented to a meeting next autumn, at some half-way station— where their great business might be brought to a happy settlement and betrothment. Both Olaf Tryggvason and the high dowager appear to have been tolerably of willing mind at this meeting, but Olaf interposed, what was always one condition with him, "'Thou must consent to baptism, and give up thy idol gods.' "'They are the gods of all my forefathers,' answered the lady. "'Choose thou what gods thou pleasest, but leave me mine.' Whereupon an altercation, and Tryggvason, as was his wont, towered up into shining wrath, and exclaimed at last, "'Why should I care about thee, then, old-faced heathen creature?' and, impatiently wagging his glove, hit her, or slightly switched her, on the face with it, and, contemptuously turning away, walked out of the adventure. "'This is a feat that may cost thee dear one day,' said Sigrid, and in the end it came to do so, little as the magnificent Olaf deigned to think of it at that moment.' One of the last scuffles I remember of Olaf's having with his refractory heathens was at a thing in Hordaland or Rogaland, far in the north, where the chief opposition hero was one Jarnskag, Ironbeard, Scotish, Ironshag, as it were. Here again was a grand heathen temple, Hakon Jarl's building, with a splendid Thor in it and much idle furniture. The king stated what was his constant wish here as elsewhere, but no sooner entered upon the subject of Christianity than universal murmur, rising into a clangor and violent dissent, interrupted him, and Ironbeard took up the discourse in reply. Ironbeard did not break down. On the contrary, he, with great brevity, emphasis, and clearness, signified that the proposal to reject their old gods was in the highest degree unacceptable to this thing, that it was contrary to bargain, withal that if it were insisted on, they would have to fight with the king about it, and in fact were now ready to do so. In reply to this, Olaf, without word uttered, but merely with some signal to the trusty armed men he had with him, rushed off to the temple close at hand, burst into it, shutting the door behind him, smashed Thor and company to destruction, then reappearing victorious, found much confusion outside, and in particular what was a most important item, the rugged iron-beard done to death by Olaf's men in the interim, which entirely disheartened the thing from fighting at that moment, having now no leader who dared to head them in so dangerous an enterprise, so that every one departed to digest his rage in silence as he could. Matters having cooled for a week or two, there was another thing held— in which King Olaf testified regret for the quarrel that had fallen out, readiness to pay what mulst was due by law for that unlucky homicide of Ironbeard by his people, and withal to take the fair daughter of Ironbeard to wife, if all would comply and be friends with him in other matters, which was the course resolved on as most convenient. Accept baptism we, marry Yarnskog's daughter you. This bargain held on both sides. The wedding, too, was celebrated, but that took a rather strange turn. On the morning of the bride-night Olaf, who had not been sleeping, though his fair partner thought he had, opened his eyes, and saw, with astonishment, the fair partner aiming a long knife ready to strike home upon him, which at once ended their wedding-life, poor Demoiselle Ironbeard, immediately bundling off with her attendants, home again, King Olaf into the apartment of his servants, mentioning there what had happened, and forbidding any of them to follow her. Olaf Tryggvason, though his kingdom was the smallest of the Norse three, had risen to a renown all over the Norse world, which neither he of Denmark nor he of Sweden could pretend to rival. A magnificent, far-shining man, more expert in all bodily exercises, as the Norse call them, than any man had ever been before him, or after was, could keep five daggers in the air, always catching the proper fifth by its handle, and sending it aloft again, could shoot supremely, throw a javelin with either hand, and in fact in battle usually throw two together these with swimming climbing leaping were the admirable fine arts of the north in all which Tryggveson appears to have been the raphael and the michelangelo at once essentially definable too if we look well into him as a wild bit of real heroism in such rude guise and environment a high true and great human soul a jovial burst of laughter in him withal a bright airy wise way of speech dressed beautifully and with care a man admired and loved exceedingly by those he liked, dreaded as death by those he did not like. Hardly any king, says Snorro, was ever so well obeyed, by one class out of zeal and love, by the rest out of dread. His glorious course, however, was not to last long. King Sven of the double beard had not yet completed his conquest of England, by no means yet, some thirteen horrid years of that still before him, when over in denmark he found that complaints against him and intricacies had risen on the part principally of one burislav king of the wends far up the baltic and in a less degree with the king of sweden and other minor individuals Sven earnestly applied himself to settle these and have his hands free burislav an aged heathen gentleman proved reasonable and conciliatory so too the king of sweden and dowager queen sigrid his managing mother Bargain in both these cases got sealed and crowned by marriage. Sven, who had become a widower lately, now wedded Sigrid, and might think, possibly enough, he had got a proud bargain, though a heathen one. Burislav also insisted on marriage with Princess Theory, the double-beard's sister. Theory, inexpressibly disinclined to wed an aged heathen of that stamp, pleaded hard with her brother, but the double-bearded was inexorable. Theory's wailings and entreaties went for nothing." With some guardian foster-brother, and a serving-maid or two, she had to go on this hated journey. Old Burislav, at sight of her, blazed out into marriage feast of supreme magnificence, and was charmed to see her, but theory would not join the marriage-party, refused to eat with it or sit with it at all. Day after day for six days flatly refused, and, after nightfall of the sixth, glided out with her foster-brother into the woods, into by-paths and inconceivable wanderings, and, in effect, got home to Denmark. Brother Sven was not for the moment there—probably enough gone to England again. But Theory knew too well he would not allow her to stay here, or anywhere that he could help, except with the old heathen she had just fled from. Theory, looking round the world, saw no likely road for her but to Olaf Tryggvason in Norway, to beg protection from the most heroic man she knew of in the world. Olaf, except by renown, was not known to her, but by renown he well was olaf at sight of her promised protection and asylum against all mortals nay in discoursing with theory olaf perceived more and more clearly what a fine handsome being soul and body theory was and in a short space of time winded up by proposing marriage to theory who humbly and we may fancy with what secret joy consented to say yes and become queen of norway in the due months they had a little son harold who it is creditably recorded was the joy of both his parents but who, to their inexpressible sorrow, in about a year died, and vanished from them. This, and one other fact now to be mentioned, is all the wedded history we have of theory. The other fact is that theory had, by inheritance or covenant, not depending on her marriage with old Burislav, considerable properties in Wendland, which she often reflected might be not a little behoveful to her here in Norway, where her civil list was probably but straightened. She spoke of this to her husband, but her husband would take no hold, merely made her gifts, and said, "'Poo-poo! Can't we live without old Burislav and his Wendland properties?' So that the lady sank into ever deeper anxiety and eagerness about this Wendland project, took to weeping, sat weeping whole days, and when Olaf asked her, "'What ails thee, then?' would answer, or did answer once, what a different man my father Harold Gormson was, vulgarly called Bluetooth, compared with some that are now kings." For no King Sven in the world would Harold Gormson have given up his own or his wife's just rights. Whereupon Tryggveson started up, exclaiming in some heat, Of thy brother Sven I was never afraid. If Sven and I meet in contest it will not be Sven, I believe, that conquers, and went off in a towering fume. Consented, however, at last, had to consent, to get his fine fleet equipped and armed, and decided to sail with it to Wendland to have speech and settlement with King Burislav. Tryggveson had already ships and navies that were the wonder of the North. Especially in building warships, the Crane, the Serpent, last of all the Long Serpent, he had for size, outward beauty, and inward perfection of equipment, transcended all example. This new sea expedition became an object of attention to all the neighbors, especially Queen Sigrid the Proud and Sven Doublebeard, her now king, were attentive to it. This insolent Trygvesen, Queen Sigrid would often say, had long been saying to her Sven, to marry thy sister without leave, had, or asked of thee, and now flaunting his war-navies, as if he, king only of paltry Norway, were the big hero of the north. Why do you suffer it, you kings really great? By such persuasions and reiterations, King Sven of Norway, King Olaf of Sweden, and Jarl Erik, now a great man there, grown rich by prosperous sea-robbery and other good management, were brought to take the matter up. "'combined strenuously for destruction of King Olaf Tryggvason "'on this grand Wendland project of his. "'Fleets and forces were with best diligence got ready, "'and withal a certain Jarl Sigwald of Jomsburg, "'chieftain of the Jomsvikings, "'a powerful, plausible, and cunning man, "'was appointed to find means of joining himself "'to Tryggvason's grand voyage, "'of getting into Tryggvason's confidants, "'and keeping Sven Doublebeard, Eric, "'and the Swedish king aware of all his movements.' King Olaf Tryggvason, unacquainted with all this, sailed away in summer, with his splendid fleet, went through the belts with a prosperous wind, under bright skies, to the admiration of both shores. Such a fleet, with its shining serpents, long and short, and perfection of equipment and appearance, the Baltic never saw before. Jarl Sigvald joined with new ships, by the way. Had, he too, a visit to King Borislav to pay, how could he ever do it in better company? and studiously and skillfully ingratiated himself with King Olaf. Old Burislav. when they arrived, proved altogether courteous, handsome, and amenable, agreed at once to Olaf's claims for his new queen, did the rites of hospitality with a generous plentitude to Olaf, who cheerily renewed acquaintance with that country, known to him in early days, the cradle of his fortunes in the Viking line, and found old friends there still surviving, joyful to meet him again. Jarl Sigvald encouraged these delays, King Sven and Company not being yet quite ready. Get ready, Sigvald directed them, and they diligently did. Olaf's men, their business now done, were impatient to be home, and grudging every day of loitering there, but still Sigvald pleased, such his power of flattery and cajoling Tryggveson they could not get away. At length Sigvald's secret messengers reporting already on the part of Sven and Company, Olaf took farewell of Burislav and Venland, and all gladly sailed away. Sven, Eric, and the Swedish king, with their combined fleets, lay in wait behind some cape in a safe little bay of some island, then called Svold, but not in our time to be found, the Baltic tumults in the fourteenth century having swallowed it, as some think, and leaving us uncertain whether it was in the neighbourhood of Rugen Island or in the sound of Elsinore. There lay Sven, Eric, and company, waiting until Tryggvason and his fleet came up, Sigvald's spy messengers daily reporting what progress he and it had made. At length, one bright summer morning, the fleet made appearance, sailing in loose order, Sigvald as one acquaintance with the shoal-places, steering ahead and showing them the way. Snorro rises into one of his pictorial fits, seethed with enthusiasm at the thought of such a fleet, and reports to us largely in what order Tryggvason's winged coursers of the deep, in long series, for perhaps an hour or more, came on, and what the three potentates, from their null advantage, said of each as it hove in sight. Svein thrice over guessed this and the other noble vessel to be the long serpent, Eric always correcting him, No, that is not the long serpent yet, and aside always, Nor shall you be lord of it, king, when it does come. The long serpent itself did make appearance. Erik, Sven, and the Swedish king hurried on board, and pushed out of their hiding-place into the open sea. Treacherous Sigvald, at the beginning of all this, had suddenly doubled the cape of theirs, and struck into the bay out of sight, leaving the foremost Tryggvason's ships astonished, and uncertain what to do, if it were not simply to strike sail and wait till Olaf himself with the long serpent arrived. Olaf's chief captains, seeing the enemy's huge fleet come out, and how the matter lay, strongly advised King Olaf to elude this stroke of treachery, and with all sail hold on his course, fight being now on so unequal terms. Snorro says, the king, high on the quarter-deck where he stood, replied, "'Strike the sails. Never shall men of mine think of flight. I never fled from battle. Let God dispose of my life, but flight I will never take.' And the battle, with all fury, went loose, and lasted hour after hour, till almost sunset, if I well recollect. "'Olaf stood on the serpent's quarter-deck,' says Snorro, high over the others.' He had a gilt shield and a helmet inlaid with gold. Over his armor he had a short red coat, and was easily distinguished from other men. Snorro's account of the battle is altogether animated, graphic, and so minute that antiquaries gather from it, if so disposed, which we but little are, what the methods of North Sea-fighting were. Their shooting of arrows, casting of javelins, pitching of big stones, ultimately boarding and mutually clashing and smashing, which it would not avail us to speak of here. Olaf stood conspicuous all day, throwing javelins of deadly aim with both hands at once, encouraging, fighting, and commanding like a highest sea-king. The Danish fleet, the Swedish fleet, were both of them quickly dealt with, and successively withdrew out of shot-range. And then Jarl Eric came up, and fiercely grappled with the long serpent, or rather with her surrounding comrades, and gradually, as they were beaten empty of men, with the long serpent herself. The fight grew ever fiercer, more furious. Eric was supplied with new men from the Swedes and Danes. Olaf had no such resource, except from the crews of his own beaten ships, and at length this also failed him, all his ships excepting the long serpent being beaten and emptied. Olaf fought on unyielding. Eric twice boarded him, was twice repulsed. Olaf kept his quarter-deck, unconquerable, though now left more and more hopeless, fatally short of help. A tall young man, called Einar Tamburskilver, very celebrated and important afterwards in Norway, and already the best archer known, was kept busy with his bow. Twice he nearly shot Jarl Erik in his ship. "'Shoot me that man,' said Jarl Erik to a bowman near him, and just as Tamburskilver was drawing his bow the third time, an arrow hit it in the middle and broke it in two. "'What is this that is broken?' asked King Olaf. "'Norway from thy hand, King,' answered Tamburskilver. Tryggvason's men, he observed with surprise, were striking violently on Eric's, but to no purpose. Nobody fell. "'How is this?' asked Tryggvason. "'Our swords are notched and blunted, King. They do not cut.' Olaf stepped down to his arm-chest, delivered out new swords, and it was observed as he did it, blood ran trickling from his wrist, but none knew where the wound was. Eric boarded a third time. Olaf, left with hardly more than one man, sprang overboard. One sees that red coat of his still glancing in the evening sun— and sank in the deep waters to his long rest. Rumour ran among his people that he still was not dead, grounding on some movement by the ships of that traitorous Sigvald. They fancied Olaf had dived beneath the keels of his enemies, and had got away with Sigvald, as Sigvald himself evidently did. Much was hoped, supposed, spoken, says one old morning scald, but the truth was Olaf Tryggvason was never seen in Norseland more. Strangely, he remains still a shining figure to us, the wildly beautifulest man in body and soul that one has ever heard of in the North. End of section 4. Early Kings of Norway. Chapter 7.